How good it is to be with you, brethren, again this evening. Uh, the Lord has seen fit that we should gather here. And He's given us a wonderful day. And there's not a better way to close it out than to gather with brothers and sisters in Christ, to sing praises to His name and to study His Word. Yes, this day is drawing to a close, but a week is beginning. And I hope that it is a week that we will go forward as God's people to be lights to the world, to take the things that hopefully we've learned and been encouraged uh, to do today and do them. As we'll see again and again as we study the Sermon on the Mount, the virtue is in the doing. Tonight we're going to speak on the subject of the God of the Sermon on the Mount. And you might be turning with me in your Bibles again to the book of Matthew. And we'll uh, be looking at Matthew 7 and in verse 21 in just a moment. As we talk about the God of the Sermon on the Mount, before we get into the study, I just want to say again thank you to the eldership for this invitation to be with you. Thank you to the Alfords for their hospitality. They took wonderful care of me this afternoon. And I'm just, uh, I'm just thankful for the privilege uh, to be able to stand and speak from God's Word. On the subject, the God of the Sermon on the Mount. If we want to learn about God, I cannot hardly fathom a richer text to go to than Matthew 5, 6, and 7. To learn about God Almighty. Jesus frequently mentions God in the Sermon on the Mount. I counted some 22 times that we are instructed about God. And what is so interesting to me as I surveyed those occasions is, is how God was addressed as Jesus spoke. Five times Jesus says God. Seventeen times Jesus says Father when referring to God. Uh, one such occasion, Matthew 7, verse 21. He, he said, My Father. In Matthew 7 and verse 21, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Are we surprised that Jesus called God my Father? Not at all. He's the only begotten Son. Of course he says, my Father. And another time he says, our Father. My ears perk up. In Matthew 6 and verse 9, as he instructs us about prayer, in this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. At this we must be amazed to be included with Christ in the intimacy of a father-child relationship as we are instructed to address him, Our Father. But then 15 times, 15 times in this discourse, he says, Your Father or Your Heavenly Father, and at this I am overwhelmed, for He makes us to be children of God. I echo the sentiment of 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. 1 John 3 and verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. What manner of love? Perhaps our ears have become dull to this language because we've heard it for so long. What else would we call God other than Father? But this is amazing that the God of all creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Almighty God, should be addressed as Father? My Father? Our Father? The frequency with which Jesus calls God your Father in this discourse teaches me that the God of the Sermon on the Mount is your Father. That Christ is stressing in this discourse the picture of God as Father. 
And yes, he tells us much about God's attributes, his desires for us, his kingdom. But he tells us God, the God, the one true God is your Father. Now, I wouldn't agree necessarily with everything that J.B. Phillips has ever taught, or maybe even necessarily with everything in this little book, your God is too small. But I really appreciate this quote, because I think it helps us to get a handle on this picture. God is your Father. Phillips wrote, when Christ taught his disciples to regard God as their Father in heaven, he did not mean that their idea of God must necessarily be based upon their ideas of their own fathers. For all we know, their fathers, uh, many of his years, may have not had fathers. For all we know, there may have been many of his years whose fathers were unjust, tyrannical, stupid, conceited, feckless, or indulgent. It is the relationship that Christ is stressing, the intimate love for and interest in his son, possessed by a good earthly father, represents to men a relationship that they can understand, even if they themselves are fatherless. The same sort of relationship Christ is saying can be reliably reckoned upon by man in his dealings with God. Such a powerful quote. You get the picture? Tell the orphan child, tell the fatherless, you have a father. And tell the single mother, your child has a father. And tell them that there will be no desertion, no disappointment, no death with this father. We come from a situation where we were blessed with parents. I was blessed to have wonderful parents and Christian parents, and they're even in the assembly tonight. But what I learned in the Sermon on the Mount is, even if I've had wonderful, godly parents, how much more a heavenly Father who surpasses even them. This is not the point in Matthew 7 and verse 11. In Matthew 7 and verse 11. If then you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? He is your heavenly Father. and He is the God of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to take the next few minutes to look at the sermon together and talk about how we can deepen this relationship between our heavenly Father and ourselves looking at the Sermon on the Mount, speaking of the God of the Sermon on the Mount, who is your Father. How shall we deepen this relationship as a child with our Father? Number one, we need to learn to esteem Him. Esteem your Father. Esteem your Father. And when we talk about esteeming the Father, our Father, it's an issue of respect. It is an issue of respect towards your Father. That's what esteeming someone means, respecting someone. It, it, it means value them, appreciate them, Prize them, respect them. That's what esteem means. And respect is learned. Respect is something which is learned. When parents are consistent with love and discipline, their children will respect them. And children need parents. They don't need buddies. And, you know, I've been a parent for about a year, so my perspective of this is still kind of the other side, a child being raised up. But I know that children need parents. They don't need buddies. They need an authority figure to set up boundaries. And when the child achieves, they need that figure to say, I'm proud of you. You did good. And when the child errs and breaks those boundaries, they need someone there to correct them, to discipline. They need that. Now, that discipline part isn't always fun. And you may not always like it. You may not always be liked when you do it at that moment. But I'll tell you this. When you are a parent to your children, they will respect you for it. And later, they will thank you 
Respect is learned. We must learn to respect our Heavenly Father. We have to learn to esteem Him. Biblically, atheism is not an enlightened worldview. It's the epitome of foolishness. And someone might look all around at this world and everything in it and our life and where we come from and say, it just happened. There's no God. Uh, that's foolishness. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Not to see Him, not to respect Him. Foolishness. But to respect Him. As the proverb writer tells us, Proverbs 1 and verse 7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. True wisdom of reality in this life and how it works begins with esteeming God. Esteeming the Father. As we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus give us reason after reason after reason why He is worthy of esteem. Why we should esteem Him. I'll go, with a few, go through a few with you. We have to esteem the Father for His name's sake. In Matthew 6 and verse 9, how are we to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name, who you are, your being merits, is worthy of our respect. His power, His power exercised in omniscience merits our respect. We're told in a couple different places, I'll point your attention, uh, direct our attention to Matthew 6 verse 4, He knows the secrets. He knows everything, Matthew 6, 4, that your treasure deed may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. He knows all. What power and omniscience. He ought to be respected for his provision. He feeds us and sustains this world. In Matthew 6 and verse 26. Matthew 6 and verse 26. He says, look at how all creation is dependent upon the Father. Can you respect that? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? In verse 32, for after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. We have to respect Him because He provides, because He feeds and takes care of His creation. We have to respect His graciousness. In Matthew 5 and verse 45. Matthew 5 and verse 45. We respect that here is a God, a Father, who loves even His enemies. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In verse 48, he encourages us to be like our Father. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. When? When we're gracious towards our enemies. We'll talk more about that in a moment. We ought to esteem him for his mercy, for his forgiveness. We talked about this this morning, but our God is merciful. He's willing to forgive just draw your attention again to Matthew 6 and, and verse 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And he directs us to ask for forgiveness in verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our daughters, debtors, and mercy is found in God. We respect Him for His rewards and for His judgments. He will reward those who serve Him. He will reward His faithful children. He will judge those who re reject Him and will have nothing to do with Him. And, and we respect Him in this, in His justice exercise. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, I think it makes the point clearly. Enter by the narrow gate, 
For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. I read those verses and I see how God's... Here's the paths. And you choose. And God judges and destroys at the end of one. And God grants life and reward at the end of the other. We ought to esteem Him and respect Him for these reasons and for so much more. All right, esteeming the Father. We should esteem the Father and something that's learned. And Jesus gives us reason upon reason. Well, why we ought to respect our Father in heaven. How? How do we show respect to Him? Two ways. First, we esteem the Father, number one, by trusting Him. By trusting Him. What do I mean? I mean surrender our will in order to do His will. And in fact, in this model prayer, He says, pray it. Matthew 6, verse 10, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. He's saying, pray for God's rule and God's authority in everything. In heaven, on earth, everywhere. And yet at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what's the only thing that I have power over submitting to His rule? Me. Me. I have to trust Him. First, I have to surrender my will to His rule. And if I pray for it, I need to do it. Surrender our ideas and our worldly wisdom to pursue which He calls wise. Trust that in doing these things, He will take care of us. That we're not out here sinning for ourselves. Look at Matthew 6 and verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. That shows a trust upon the Father He will provide. As we follow His rule, He takes care of us. And this is echoed again later in the chapter in verse 32. Matthew 6, verse 32. He says, For after all these things the Gentiles seek, He's talking about the issues of life, of food and clothing, and sometimes what we call creature comforts. He says, For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Now, it doesn't say there that everyone who becomes a Christian is going to get rich. That obeying the gospel is the best get-rich get scheme ever invented. But he does say what? If you will trust Him, He will take care of you. And it is a sign of respect to say, no more my will, my way, your will. Your way, and you will work it out. And perhaps this is ultimately expressed in casting off our worries. In Matthew 6 and verse 34, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. If we could as children, when we're laying up at night, we've all had those nights you just can't sleep. Because of the worry and the stress and the care, if we could at that time say, I am a child, and you are father, and turn those things over to him in prayer. Just turn those things over to him. Respect him. It shows reliance and trust. It's esteeming Him. That's the first way. That's the first way we esteem Him. And here's the second way. Esteem Him by obeying Him. So in the trust, in my mind, in my heart, I said, not me, you. And now in the obedience, my will and actions follow through. I do it. Again, the virtue in the doing. Obedience communicates respect. Disobedience communicates disrespect. I think all the parents in the room can amen that statement, doesn't it? <laughs> Thank you, parents. <laughs> you like it when the children obey. Uh, in, in Matthew 7, 
And verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. It's not all who say it, it's the ones who do it. All right. The ones who obey. In verse 24, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Not whoever gave me a hearing, but who hears them and what? Does them. Does them. That's right. Obedience communicates respect. I've heard the word. I will do it. Disobedience communicates disrespect. In like manner, obedience communicates respect, while pretense Mockery and hypocrisy communicate disrespect. Matthew 5, verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, things we've heard all our lives, terribly shocking to the people who first heard them. Because if it's the scribes and the Pharisees who don't go to heaven, who goes to heaven? They're our teachers. Your righteousness must surpass all the teachers. What's the problem with the teachers? With the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, they're indicted again and again and again throughout the New Testament for their hypocrisy. For putting on this act of going through the forms and, and binding, having burdens on others that they would not touch themselves, for just putting out the right picture but a heart and sincerity being far from God. Oh, the best show they could put on for their devotion to God, and yet, and yet it was hypocrisy. And this two-facedness communicates a disrespect to the Father. We cannot play at Christianity, for it disrespects our Heavenly Father. We need to esteem Him, trust Him, to obey Him genuinely. Second, we're going to grow deeper in our relationship with our Heavenly Father if we would experience Him. Number two, experience your Father. Experience your Father. And this is an issue that deals with time. This is a time issue. It really is. We have to make time to commune with our Father. We sing a hymn, take time to be holy. And what we need to understand as the people of God is it takes time to be holy. Now, I was trying to make this point Friday morning at a assisted living place where I do a Bible study on Fridays. And it, elderly lady just speaks up and she's like, well, what if you don't have the time? And I understand in that setting, time is short. <laughs> she says, what if you don't have the time? I said, then we have to make the time. And that's really what it's about. We have to make the time to be holy. In the earthly father-child relationship, I think we're beginning to learn as a people, as a society, that, quote, quality time, end quote, is no substitute for quantity time. In fact, the more quantity time we dedicate to a relationship, any relationship, the greater quality it becomes. I'll give you an example that a father might put off his son all week long. Dad, I need this. Not now, son. I'm working. Dad, I need this. Not now, son. The game's on. Dad, I need this. Not, not now, son. I'm, I'm busy. And, and you can go on. And then the father says, but I've got quality time scheduled Saturday. It's there in the, mar it's there, it's there in the agenda. Three hours. We're going to do a soccer. We're going to do McDonald's. And it's going to be our quality time. When then time passes, and the father realizes, I'm not close to my son like I'd like to be close to my son. 
But we've had this little quality time, these little appointments here and there, but the, the thing is that the son, the children, they need you all week long, and they need you when they needed you. And, it, and that can't always get put into the three hours that's scheduled in the agenda. I'm not saying don't make time on Saturdays for kids. That's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm just saying that we can't all put it onto a little block of, quote, quality time. It's about quantity. They need you when they need you. And how often do we try and do the same thing to our Heavenly Father? Not going to give him quantity time, but he's going to get quality time. And in the agenda, he's going to get three hours on Sunday. And that's our quality time with God. Going to do some singing, going to have some prayer, going to hear a sermon. That's my quality time with God. And, 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 and then, you know, time passes. I don't feel close to God like I, like I ought to. And then we start pointing fingers. My quality time with God wasn't all that great this week. And you know whose fault it is? It's the preacher's fault. He just spoke too long or he spoke too short or something was wrong. My quality time with God this week wasn't so great because of the song leader. The song was too fast. The song was too, pitched too high. Whatever. It's somebody else's fault because my little quality time just, just didn't deliver. You may have real issues about your worship service as a congregation. You ought to address those issues. But I'm going to suggest this. That if we give the quantity of time, I mean some every day, those worship issues work themselves out. We haven't all hung it on an hour or two on a Sunday morning. We've been communing with God all week long. And this is icing on the cake and encouragement to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ and worship Him together. God should have a quantity of time. And experiencing the Father, don't be scared by that word experience. I'll explain what I mean. Experiencing the Father isn't about an overly emotional, crying one minute, hands waving in the next minute, jumping up and down, passing out, circus event of a worship service. That's not what I'm talking about. Experiencing God is about quiet, focused time, daily, committed to the Father. And committed to doing those things we find in the Sermon on the Mount, which we're told will deepen our knowledge and our relationship and our connection with God. Like what, you say? Like genuinely listening to His Word. Genuinely listening to His Word. In Matthew 5 and verse 20, the Pharisees and scribes received an indictment. I mentioned it a moment ago. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And after saying those words, the chapter progresses to give six instances where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, da, 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 but it has been said, da, 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 but I say, that's what we get the rest of the chapter. And it shows me that there was a lot of listening to words about God's Word. But that God's Word had actually gotten drowned out and lost amongst all the traditions and the sermons and the opinions by the learned rabbis. The people Jesus is talking to, yes, some of them were religious, very religious. They were hearing about God's Word. But evidently, we're not genuinely hearing God's Word. There's a difference between everyone talking about it and you go read it for yourself. There is a difference. And that same distinction exists today. 
And we need to be careful about today. And hey, I'm talking to myself because I, I say I'm guilty of this. I'll be trying to study some passage. I'm putting in a whole work day opening up all these books about some passage. I didn't open up the book to look at that again. I'm speaking to myself. I know this is a problem among others. They like reading devotional books. They get away from reading the Bible. Devotional books have their place, but they cannot replace time reading the Bible. Commentaries. Commentaries have their place. They do not replace Bible reading. And if all the time is spent reading others' thoughts about God's Word, then we're going to have a lot of this, you have heard it said. <laughs> but there might be this big foot about to drop. Uh, but I say... We'll never know because we're not reading our Bibles. We need time genuinely listening to His Word. Time every day reading the Bible. Wear it out. Open it up. Read it. Study it. I, I think that is a proud moment when you pick it up and it's just about ready to fall right out of the binding. You can go get you another one. And that's fun too. <laughs> People are scared to write in their Bible and take notes. Don't be scared about that. It's not the autograph. Apostle Paul isn't going to come up to you and say, I've been working on that all day. Don't write on that. No. Read it. Study it. Wear it out. Get you another. Do it again. We need to genuinely hear his word. We need to genuinely pray to him. Take time every day to genuinely speak to God in prayer. In Matthew 6. Let's look at verses 5 through 8. He says, And when you pray, you shall not be like... The hypocrites, the play actors, they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. And certainly I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. It says, when prayers are to be seen or heard by men, that's not genuine. That's not when you need time in genuine prayer to experience Him in prayer and communicate in prayer. That's not genuine. This being said to the people, say, what a lovely prayer. It was so articulate. It was so poetic. You brought me there. So thank you. It wasn't about bringing them there. Not as a performance. Understand what I'm saying. Public prayer is about leading hearts and minds to the throne of grace, but it's, it's because one a man is very serious about speaking. And though his words will be heard by others, he's speaking to God on behalf of others. And those that take it for a time of posturing, that prayer is not going anywhere. He talks about vain repetitions. When prayers are, are other people's words, other people's sentiments, how can it be genuine? I read these verses and I say, you can't hallmark a prayer. I appreciate those books at the end of a chapter, you know, as some kind of study guide or something, say, pray about these things. I don't always say those words out loud, but it gets my thoughts, you know, my mind thinking, these would be good things worthy of attention in prayer. We shouldn't have cars. We shouldn't have, as some churches teach, X number of prayers said in this manner for these reasons. That's not genuine prayer. It's not about being seen by men. It's not about anyone else being around. It's not about the script. It's about quiet time as you unload your heart to God. As He hears you pray. 
genuinely and genuinely serve Him. Again, emphasis in all these things is about the genuine, isn't it? Because uh, as the sermon goes on, these activities seem to be going on that are right. They're just, they're just not genuine. In Matthew 6 and verse 1, Take heed that you do uh, not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by men. Otherwise, you have no reward from, from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound the trumpets before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Let your charitable deed may be in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will Himself reward you openly. I'm not sure that this is teaching us that everything must be done in complete anonymity. Because in the 16th verse of the 5th chapter... It talks about people seeing your good works and glorifying the Father in heaven. So when we talk about this, about doing these good deeds, it's really a heart issue. Am I doing this to be seen by God or am I doing it because it's right? Am I doing this to be seen by men and I want their glory? And so it's got to be a big show. Or I'm doing it really genuinely to please God. And if people see it, that's fine. They're going to glorify God because I'm doing it to glorify God. Or, or do we need all that glory for ourselves? When good deeds are done because it is right, that glorifies Him. That's genuine. Whether men see it, whether they do not. Genuine. Genuine. And so in making time daily to be listening to His Word in our Bible reading, to be praying to Him, whether people are around whether they're not, but certainly time to pray to Him, genuinely serving Him and doing those things which are righteous and right in His sight, whether people know about it or whether they don't. In these ways, we experience the Father when we grow in that relationship and commune with Him. And here's the third and final point tonight. We want to grow deeper with our Heavenly Father. We need to emulate Him. Emulate your Father. Be like your Father. The issue is imitation. Imitation. Be just like your father. Uh, you know, that's, that's the kind of a, the genetic wonder, and for some people maybe they feel it's the curse, <laughs> that you're going to look a lot like your family. <laughs> I've got a little daughter, and some of you are going to get to meet her tonight and stick around, and when she smiles, people say, she is just a carbon copy of you. And I try and say something like, oh, maybe she'll grow out of it. <laughs> big smile, big smile, and she ought to smile more. We're going to look like our father, aren't we? We're going to pick up mannerisms, ideologies of our father. You can talk to somebody for a while, and if you know their father, you oh, you are just a chip off the old block. Oh, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. You know what I'm talking about. God is your father, your heavenly father. Be like him. Emulate him. Imitate him. Time is taken by Jesus in the sermon to tell us who not to be like. He tells us don't be like the Gentiles. Matthew 6, verse 32. He says, for after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. What's the message? Don't be like them. Why, Gentiles are people who didn't know God. They were religious, kind of. They were pagans. They were serving idols. The gods they crafted, they could serve however they pleased. The religion was not true. They were not righteous. Don't be like them. Don't be like the tax collectors, Matthew 5, verse 46. Don't be like the tax collectors. 
He says, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. The tax collectors were seen as selfish swindlers. They betrayed their own people to the Romans for money. Don't be like that. Don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew 5, verse 20, we've read it a couple of times, that your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Their righteousness in act, a show, a hypocrisy, that wasn't righteous. It wouldn't bring them to God. Don't be like that. Be like your father. Be like your heavenly father. Copy him. Follow his example. And certain things are highlighted in this sermon that say it will make you like your father. For instance, we're told, be a peacemaker. In Matthew 5 and verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Shall be called sons of God. Just like father, God the peacemaker. We talked a little bit about this this morning. About the desire for reconciliation. How we need to reconcile with others that there may be enmity or difficulty with. One amazing example God is of being a peacemaker because He's never done anything wrong to us. We rise up and sin against Him. And He's willing to build the bridge and have the reconciliation through Christ. He's willing to go and make peace. And all we have to do is but accept it and come to Him on His terms for peace. Our Father is a peacemaker in that respect. And frankly, we're not always very good at it. We're too proud. You're going to make a peace, a reconciliation with somebody. Somebody's got to be humble enough to say, I'm sorry. Somebody else has to be humble enough to say, I forgive, and things of this nature. We often fall far short of the image of our Father, who is willing to make peace with those who have even separated themselves by sin and such hostility. Our Father is a lover of the enemies. In Matthew 5, and verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies... Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect, by loving our enemies, those that would spitefully use us, those who are out to get us. Do good to them. Act of goodwill to them. Just like your Father. Just like your Father has done to sinners and sinful mankind. Love enemies. Forgive others. Again, in Matthew 6, and verse 14, this is something the Father does. He says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And so there is a model here of a Father who's willing to forgive. But will we be like our Heavenly Father and forgive? Or will we hold the grudge? Will we stir up the strife and always make sure that, that there never really is peace, that we're not really loving our enemies, that we do not forgive? Or will we be like our Father? 
our Heavenly Father. And I believe that the Father's love, forgiveness, and peacemaking power is perfectly expressed in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the last passage I want to share with you. It's Romans chapter 5, and then the lesson is yours. Where we find in these verses, Romans chapter 5 and verses 6 through 11, we see Him taking action to reconcile, to make peace. We see the expression of love, ultimately. We see forgiveness. In Romans 5 and verse 6, it says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. See all the pieces there? of reconciliation and peacemaking, of forgiveness by His blood, of loving enemies. He didn't die for the godly. He died for the, for the ungodly. And while we were without strength and while we were sinners, yes, our Father modeled all these things. And I believe one of the calls of the Sermon on the Mount is to emulate your Father in these ways. Because the God of the Sermon on the Mount is your Father. 